Amen, amen. Thank you so much, Cody, and the worship team for leading us in worship this morning. And y'all, once again, it's so great to have all you uh, with us today. If you would, please take your copy of God's Word. If you have a copy with you, turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, we are in a series right now in the Gospel of John titled In the Upper Room. But we are moving from John 13 through chapter 17, primarily looking at the final words of Jesus to his disciples before he went to the cross. In the Upper Room. And we'll be finishing up chapter 13 this morning. As you're turning there, I remember growing up, one of my favorite things uh, to do growing up was to go to a place called the Owl Center. Owl, O-W-L, the Owl Center. It was owned by the Methodist Children's Home, and as, as a church, as a youth group, I can remember we went there, I don't know how many times, even just taking just a youth guys trip, we would go out there. Remember, I loved it because they had a pond for you to play in or to fish in if you wanted to. They had high ropes courses, low ropes courses. They had a trapeze. They had all these different things that you could go and you could do. And I remember we just had a blast every time we went. And I remember fairly early on in junior high, at the end of elementary school or early on in junior high, they, they added a new feature at the Owl Center. They built a maze. Now, that might not be very amazing to everybody here because the corn mazes here have been pretty uh, incredible compared to what I come from. But they built a maze there. And what, what it was was they built it with wood, eight feet tall. They built it up. And they had, basically it was just a square, there was four entry points, and there was a ton of different games you could get of trying to get in through the maze and get out a certain door. I can remember one time we were there, and, and the Owl Center leader was there, and he was telling us about a game where we had to go in, we had to get to the middle, at the middle of the maze was a big tower that you could see from anywhere, it was a big tower. You'd get to the center, and you'd get what you need, and then whatever you got there, or whatever you were given, you were to go out a different exit, and you had to find your way out, and the first person to do it won, and then there was another one where you had to get from one side to the other, and you had to see who won. We just played a lot of games. But I remember he told us, before you go in, just know one thing. I'm going to be standing up in the tower, but I cannot talk to you. And so we start. We start the game, and we get very quickly in, and I can remember my, me and my group, we're looking, we're trying to find something, and I look up at the person in the tower whenever we come to a spot where there's a why. And I kind of did this to the person in the tower, and they shook their head no. And so I was like, this way? And they shook their head yes. So we started going that way. So then pretty much any decision we had to make, I'd look up at them, and I'd point one way or the other. And oddly enough, I accidentally stumbled upon what he said was, I will not talk to you. But the trick of the game is, is he'll guide you the whole way through. All you have to do is just look to him. And pretty much we whooped everybody from that point on, because of course we didn't share our secret. But we got through whatever we did. All we had to do was look to the tower. Friends, our lives are much like a maze oftentimes, right? Like we, we have many twists and turns in our lives. We have many decisions we have to make. We have all sorts of things that just happen in our lives. In many ways, it's like a maze. But much like in this story, there's someone we're called to look to. In the story, you're called to look to the tower. Well, here you're called to look to Jesus. But not just to Jesus, we're called to look to the cross. The title of the sermon this morning is that, Look to the Cross. You know, oftentimes I think of a problem we may face is people consider the cross as a place you look to for salvation, and that's it. Well, absolutely it's the spot we look to for salvation, but the cross is also more than that. We are called to look to the cross all of our lives. And what I'm proposing to you this morning is this, the cross where Jesus' blood was shed for us must be the lifeblood of our faith and focus. The cross is not just the ABCs of Christianity, it is the A to Z of Christianity. The cross is not just the beginning of the Christian life. It's the beginning, the middle, the end. You can encapsulate all of it at the cross. We must look to the cross. And as we come into the story we're in today, in John chapter 13, 
We see Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. And then next he identifies that Judas is going to betray him. And so Judas, whenever he leaves the room, after Judas leaves the room, the whole atmosphere in the room, I mean, changes like that. It just changes. Earlier in the story, John says that you can see Jesus' spirit, he was troubled. But after Judas left, it was time to have the final words with his disciples before he was to leave them. And this is what we see in John chapter 31, or chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. When he, meaning Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. There's a lot of glorifying going on here if you haven't noticed. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while and I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. We're going to look at as we walk through this, as Jesus is pointing to the cross, as he's beginning his final words to his disciples, we're going to notice four points concerning the significance of the cross that we see in this passage. Four points concerning the significance of the cross in this passage. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. God, we stop now to pause and just to simply pray, but help us see what you want us to see. Help us hear what you want us to hear. Give us hearts that desire to obey what you want to tell us this morning. Father, I pray, please, send your spirit. I pray that your words would be in my mouth. Lord, keep my words out of yours and bless the people here today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So again, we're going to look at four points concerning the significance of the cross. Look at verse 31 again. Verse 31, it says, when he had gone out, meaning Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now is the Son of Man glorified. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but it's interesting that Son of Man is the primary title that Jesus uses for himself. The Son of Man. He says it 88 times. He calls himself the Son of Man. Well, there's significance in this. It, 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 it symbolizes a lot of different things. It symbolizes Jesus' humanity. It symbolizes Jesus' humility. It symbolizes also, though, Jesus' divinity and his mission, which we see Daniel chapter 7, this son of man is going to come and he's going to conquer. And so there's a lot that's wrapped up in this. But he says the son of man, it's now time for the son of man to be glorified. Now think about this. Remember, we, we know what's coming. They did not. So we can say Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to die. But why is it that Jesus didn't say now is the time for the son of man to die? He doesn't say that. Now is the time for the Son of Man to go to the cross. No, instead, he says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, Jesus does not give them information necessarily of what's going to happen. He says something significant is about to happen. What is about to happen is going to be significant. I will be glorified. We do this all the time. I saw an example this week of, of two guys talking about this. Now, I think it's 
it's, it, it makes a lot of sense. We, we don't always tell people the information of what we're doing. We often speak in the significance of what we're doing. For instance, if you're in your kitchen and you're making cookies, let's say you're making them from scratch, which a lot of us probably don't do that. We just go for whatever we got there. But imagine that you have your bowl, you have flour that you put in, you have sugar you put in, you throw an egg in, you throw whatever else you're going to put in there, and you begin stirring it. And a child walks in and says, what are you doing? I've yet to ever hear someone say, well, I'm taking a wooden spoon, and I'm stirring together flour and, and some sugar and some egg. No, what do you say? I am making cookies. I'm telling you the significance of what I'm doing. I'm not saying exactly what I'm doing. I'm saying there's something greater at work here. I'm making cookies. In the same way, it's interesting. Jesus does not say, I'm going to die. He says, I am going to be glorified. Something significant is coming. Something significant is about to happen. Which here we see the first point. The cross is the place where Jesus' glory is most clearly magnified. He says, I'm about to be glorified, and we know he's about to go to the cross. The cross is the place where Jesus' glory is most clearly magnified. It's put on grand display. So whenever Jesus goes to the cross, says he's glorified, the glory of God is put on display. Now, don't forget, the glory of God can be a difficult thing to define at times. It's not like defining a pew or a baseball or a basketball, something very easy to define. It's more like trying to define the word beauty. Or trying to define the word grace. It's harder. You can define it in a lot of different ways. Well, to define the glory of God is somewhat like that. But the glory of God is literally the abundance, the abundance of his goodness and his grace. The beauty and goodness of his abundant perfections made manifest. And even that is a wide reaching. But it's what makes God God put on display. That is his glory. The beauty and goodness of who he is. So for God to be glorified... Think of the word glorify, if you were to take the word glory and take the word magnify and put them together. That's what glorify means, It's to magnify one's glory, glorify them. So for Jesus to be glorified, it means he's going to put his glory, his beauty, his goodness on grand display. So what Jesus is saying is on the road to the cross, I'm going to the cross and there I will be glorified. There you will see the abundant goodness of who I am. What does that mean? It means at the cross, you see the greatest example of who our Lord and Savior is. At the cross, you see the greatest indicator of what makes God, God. I'll explain it to you like this and personalize it for us this morning. Do you want to know just how sovereign God is? You look to the cross. All throughout the gospel, Jesus says, my hour has not come. My hour has not come. Now he says, my hour has come. In other words, I'm on my timetable, not anybody else's. Remember last week, we talked about how it's interesting how how the, the devil feels Judas, and he goes into Judas, but Jesus is still in control. He says, now go, and whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Jesus is in control. Where do you see that most clearly? The cross. Where do you see the wisdom of God? The wisdom of God most clearly, the cross. God uses the betrayal of man to bring about the redemption of man. Where do you see the wisdom of God put on grand display? On the cross. Where do you see the justice of God most clearly displayed? Friends, Romans 3, we, we, we memorize Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we forget there are verses that come after that that says God sent Jesus to the cross to prove that he was righteous, to prove that whenever he said sin demands payment, he meant it. On the cross, you see the justice of God. Sin must be paid for, and the cost of sin is death. Death is just separation from God. Physical death, it leads to spiritual separation, death forever. 
And Jesus came and took that separation for us, took that death for us. Where do you see the justice of God? On the cross. Where do you see God's divine wrath? On the cross against sin. Where do you see the power of God? On the cross to defeat sin and later defeat death. Where do you see the loving nature of God? Where do you see God's mercy, God's grace? In a few short chapters, in John 15, 13, he'll say, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. The greatest example of love, you look to the cross of mercy. God's saying, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to do it instead. Of grace, I'm going to give you something you don't deserve. I'm going to give you salvation through this. Friends, you could go over and over and over the characteristics of who God is. Do you know where you see them most clearly exemplified? At the cross. The cross shows us the glory of God in greater detail than any other act. This is why we boast. We don't just boast in Jesus. We boast in the cross of Jesus. Paul says it this way, Galatians 6, 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. We're going to play out more application as we walk through this, but Friends, I would tell you this morning, wherever you're at, no matter where you are, your greatest need is to look to the cross. If you don't know Christ, you must look to the cross. If you're in here this morning and you're apathetic, look to the cross. If you're here this morning and you're struggling, look to the cross. Make multiple trips there daily if you must. Go to the cross, look at it, because whenever you look there, you see Jesus and his glory put on grand display. Look at what Jesus says next, verse 33. I want you to notice just the tenderness of which he speaks here. Verse 33, he says, little children. These are grown men. Listen, now he's talking to them. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Notice the tone of Jesus here. Little children, just as I've said to the Jews, I now say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Can you imagine what that would be like to hear for the disciples? The man who they followed for years now, who's now saying, I'm about to leave, and where I'm going, you cannot follow me anymore. The road ends right here. Can you imagine the feeling in the room, the atmosphere in the room, I'm leaving, and you can't follow along with me? You know, as I read this, I... I've always assumed whenever Jesus made those comments, he was talking about heaven. But remember, what's in view here? The cross. Jesus is about to go to the cross where he's going to be glorified. And where Jesus is going, he's saying, you cannot come with me. Why? Primarily because he alone is able to do what needs to be done. As one commentator says, they could not join him in his Passover mission of death. He had to go by himself. Which leads to the second point you'll see on the screen is this. The cross is the place where only Jesus could go in our place. The cross is the place where Jesus' glory is most clearly magnified, but the cross is the place also where only Jesus could go in our place. You want to think about one of the hardest things for people to understand? People have a hard time understanding their absolute and complete dependency and need on Jesus alone for salvation. John Stott, one famous scholar, said if he had an hour to speak to someone about the gospel, he'd spend 50 minutes on the bad news because he said people just don't get it. They don't think they're that bad. They don't think they need it. And friends, one of the issues that we see here is Jesus is saying only I can do this. This is hard for us because we're in a world, honestly, where in so many ways, if you don't do something for yourself, nobody else is going to do it for you. 
If somebody writes a workout plan for you, whose job is it to do it? It's yours. doesn't matter how good the plan is, you must do it. If somebody writes a diet for you, who must do it? You must do it. Even in the Christian walk, spiritual disciplines, how can you grow? Well, you must read God's word. I can't read God's word for you. I can pray on your behalf, but I can't pray in your place, right? You need to pray. You need to be the one to fast. You need to be the one who attends. I can't do those things for you. But whenever it comes to the cross, friends, it's the exact opposite. There is nothing that you and I bring to the cross except for the sin that made Jesus go there in the first place. Only Jesus is qualified to pay the penalty for our sin. I said it a while ago, the cost of sin is death. It's separation. In other words, death is the result of our sin. We could not go to the cross because death, we would just be doing what we are paid. But Jesus did not go to the cross as a result of his sin. Jesus went to the cross as a sacrifice for sin. There's a difference there. He didn't go as a result of his sin. He went there willingly to lay down his life, to be a sacrifice, to be a substitution in our place to die for us. Friends, all of God's word is about Jesus. You can go from the beginning to the end. You can see this story over and over and over again. One of the clearest pictures of this idea of substitution you see in the story of Jesus and Barabbas. Many of you maybe know the story where Jesus comes before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate finds him innocent. He says he's a just man and, and, and he's innocent. And Pontius Pilate does not want to, to put him over to the Jews. He does not want to condemn him. And so he thinks of an idea. He's going to bring the worst, the most notorious killer they have in the cellar, Barabbas. He's going to bring him up and say, which one would you have me release to you, Jesus or Barabbas? Matthew 27 says Barabbas was a notorious sinner. And Luke, he goes a little further saying he was a murderer. He was a thief. He was on the death penalty, and he rightly deserved it. But if you know the story, you know that whenever Pontius Pilate asked the crowd, who should I release to you? They said, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. If you think about it, it's interesting. Barabbas is the only person who can literally say, Jesus died in my place. Like, I was the one under the death penalty. But friends, there's so much significance to this story. Specifically, scholars have pointed out that Barabbas' name is peculiar, and it's oddly generic. It's very generic. Many of you even know what the back half of his name means. Abba, Abba means father. The first part, Bar, means son of. Literally, his name is son of a father. Friends, which man that's ever been born was not a son of a father? You literally name the child son of a father? Well, what's the point? It's a picture. Barabbas is humanity, and he was substituted in his place. Whenever Barabbas was released, it was every son of a father, every man, humanity was released, and Jesus took our place. You notice even with, with him, whenever he was released, it isn't like he turned and thanked Jesus or said anything to him. No, he just continued. No doubt, I'm sure, went and did what he did before. Because why? Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't change us and then die for us. No, no. while we were still sinners, at our worst, the notorious killer we see here, it's the picture of the gospel of Jesus being a substitute in our place. God's divine wrath is poured out on him instead of us. God's divine justice is takes place where sin is paid for by Jesus, what he does on the cross, and it's in your place. Friends, do you understand that? Do you understand that truth this morning? I'm not just asking you, do you understand it, but do you believe it? Has it moved from your head down into your heart? Have you placed your faith in this? Have you placed all your weight 
unto this, that Jesus died for you. That it is because of you he had to die. If not, friends, the first thing you must do is you must repent and place your faith in Jesus. That's the main thing you need to take away from this sermon. You need to look to the cross and recognize that everything you need to know about Jesus, you have it right there. He loved you enough to be your substitute. But friends, if you are a follower of Christ, then hear me again. You must look to the cross and be reminded over and over again, I could not do it by myself, but praise God, I don't have to. Jesus did it in my place. In the same way that Jesus told his disciples, where I'm going, you cannot go, friends, he says to you and me, I went where you could not go. That you might could come where you never would be able to by yourself. We must look to the cross, the place where only Jesus could go. Look at what he says next, verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, these two verses, verse 34 and 35, are verses that I've walked with people with before, we've memorized before, but I realize that I have actually been, uh, been convicted of pulling this a little bit out of context, not paying attention completely. What is Jesus saying here? Is it not odd in the flow of the conversation I'm going to be glorified. I'm about to leave you. Now I want to tell you, love people. All right, Jesus, if, if the cross is in focus, what are you trying to show us? What are you trying to tell us? Everything he says here is in relation to where he is going, to his glorification, to the cross. Why point out love? Because Jesus is about to give them an example that they had no category in their life for. He's about to show them an example of love that they had never been able to see before, even as this before, whenever he washes the disciples' feet. Remember, he gets back in his place and he says, what I've done, you don't understand now, but you'll understand later. Which shows us the third point. The cross is the place where Jesus' love is most clearly displayed. The cross is the place where Jesus' love is most clearly displayed. His glory is magnified. He goes in our place. And the greatest thing that we see that comes out of the cross is we see just how much Jesus loves us, just how far he's willing to go to redeem us. There is a direct connection between the cross, between understanding his love, and understanding what he's done for us. Paul says it very clearly in Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses, I have been crucified with Christ. What's he point to? What's he looking to? The cross. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who did what? Who loved me, who gave himself for me. The cross is all over the Christian life. That's why you can live for Jesus. And at the cross, Jesus' love is displayed in all of its glory. But notice what Jesus says. He says, a new commandment I am giving to you. I don't know about for y'all, but growing up, I knew that there was a very big difference between a commandment and a suggestion. There was never a time my dad said, Merrick, take out the trash, where I said, you know what, Dad, you're right. That trash does need to be taken out. I'll consider your request. I never did that because I wouldn't have made it through the evening, right? But a command is very clear. A commandment is an order that has authority behind it. Guys, listen to what Jesus is telling them. Just as I have loved you, where is he about to go? He's saying, just as I have loved you, you are to love each other. Why would he call this a new commandment? We know we're called to love each other. We know Jesus summarizes all of the Ten Commandments, Mark 12, 30 and 31. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
This encapsulates the Ten Commandments. We know love has been a part, it's a theme of God's word from beginning to end. So what's new about this commandment? Well, the picture, the category was about to change. I'm going to give my life for you, and just as I love you, you are to love each other. That changes the category completely. Just as I love you, you are to love each other. He changes the standard of love. But notice he says, you are to love one another. In other words, he's telling the disciples, people who are followers of me should have a unique type of love for each other. And the irony is before he says, you cannot follow me to the cross, but he says, you can follow the example I'm about to give you at the cross. Love one another. You see, after the cross, there would be a new unity for those who are in Jesus. You actually are able to be in Jesus. And he's saying, because of what I'm about to do, you will now have the ability. There will be a new bond for believers where you should love one another in the same way that I have loved you. In other words, to love like this would have been impossible. At least it was until Jesus went to the cross. But after he went to the cross, Jesus enables us to love like this. And even more so, he commands us to do so. And look at what he says. Look at the kicker. Look at verse 35. Jesus doesn't just command them to love one another like this. He says something else. By this, by your love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We'll explain in more detail what it means to love God in a later sermon as he walks through this. But right now, just look at the preeminence and the importance on love. Jesus is saying the proof to the world that you are a disciple of mine is by the way you love one another. In other words, if you do not love one another, do you really know Jesus? John takes this up later in 1 John. He says, if you can't love the people that you can see with your own eyes, why would we believe that you can love a God who you cannot see? This is the point that Jesus is making. His followers will have a supernatural ability to love one another because of a supernatural love that they will experience in him. When the power of Jesus comes into your life, you are enabled to love like you had not been able to before, and you are commanded to do so. It's a proof to the world that you know Jesus. Kenneth O'Gangle is the author of Holman New Testament commentary on the book of John. He says this, Jesus' love has an expulsive power like nothing else. It's an expulsive power. When a new love enters into our hearts, it can drive out old feelings. When a new love enters our heart, it can drive out stagnant feelings. When a new love enters into our heart, it can remove loves that we had for other things. One writer even calls this kind of love the expulsive power of a new affection. He shares an example that I think is spot on. and I think about it even in my life. He says, imagine if you were to walk into the kitchen and you see a child go over and, and grab a knife that's on the island or on the counter. This has happened numerous times in my house. There's always a big gasp and just a please, Lord, don't let anything bad happen. A lot of times they'll go over and they'll just reach up and kids will do it, right? They grab a knife. Whenever a kid pulls off a knife, for some kids what you don't want to say is, hey, give me that knife because what is that little booger going to do? Right? He's going to turn. He's going to hightail it, right? He's going to turn and run away. Or give me that or whatever it might be. You might hold it or you might do something. If you're my youngest, you might be liable to just chunk that thing if I say something about it, right? But what about if whenever they pick up the knife, you have something you know they want. You have food right here and you say you know what you give me the knife and I'll give you this all of a sudden you see a kid walking <laughs> coming to you like this right or if you have a toy that they don't know about and you pull it out and you say you give me the knife I'll give you this toy there's something about a new affection that makes them no longer concerned with what they were priorly dealing with right and in the same way think about it for us 
God's love is like that in our hearts. We only love one another because of the way that Jesus has loved us. And as we love Jesus, as we continue to look to the cross, as we continue to grow in understanding the love of Jesus, it makes us release ourselves of our own selfishness because of a new affection of the love that he has given us. We release our own pride in our life. We release living life our own way. And we begin to live as Jesus called us to, to love like he called us to. As O'Gangle says here, and when we do that, when we do what he commands, others will notice that we are his disciples, cleansed and changed by the expulsive power of a new affection. It's hard to speak about the love of Christ whenever someone can look at your life and see very little of it. But don't miss what Jesus is saying here. In a few hours, you're going to notice whenever Jesus is going to be betrayed, he's already been taken, Peter's going to follow behind him, and Peter's going to see people he's never talked to, but they recognize him and they say, you're one of his disciples. What's interesting is during Jesus' life, people knew who his followers were. They knew who the disciples were. Why? Because they were always with Jesus. They knew who the disciples were. And what Jesus is saying is, even in my absence, whenever I am gone, people should be able to look and say, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? Whether I'm here or whether I'm gone, our love should be the evidence of Christ's work in our hearts. Love is the distinguishing mark of a believer. To be even more clear, Jesus doesn't say, people will know that you are mine by the bumper sticker on your car. People will know that you're mine because you attend church. People will know that you're mine because of a Facebook post you made or because of your Instagram bio. No, people will know because of the way that you love one another. Friends, there should be no love like what is found inside of a church family, period. There should be no love like what is found inside of the church family. Do you love others like this? Now, it's easy for us to say, yes, I think I do. Well, John will say this later, 1 John 3.18, little children. I like that he uses that, that verbiage. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Do you love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that mirrors what Jesus has done for us? I can't fully example that. Uh, I can't fully answer that question for you, but let me give you a, a minor litmus test. What do you sacrifice to love and serve your church family? You can define love by one word, sacrifice. You see it with Jesus walking to the cross. Do you sacrifice time to make small group, to make Sunday school a priority? I'm going to be there. Do you sacrifice time to be here, to be in church weekly, to come here and to worship with a group of people, to love one another? Do you sacrifice maybe the privacy that you maybe would like to have of using your home as a safe space and invite people into your home and show them love by bringing them in and breaking bread with them? Ask it in another way. Do people in our church call on you for things? You want to know how people, you, people know that you love them? Is whenever they go through a hard time, your phone rings. You get a text message. You get a phone call. Because why? Because those people know that you care. How often do you hear from your fellow brothers and sisters whenever there's a need that they have? Friends, look, it's easy for us to say I love my brothers and sisters in Christ, but do you define love the way Jesus is by laying down your life for one another? In a way that's so radical, he says, by this, all people will know. They'll know. Friends, how do we get there? It's simple. We look to the cross. It's the example. It's the model. We lay down our life for our brothers and sisters in Christ because we love them because a new affection has taken over our life. Which leads to the last bit. 
of this passage. Verse 36 says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. You read this, and the first question I want to ask is, Peter, have you been paying attention, man? Like, obviously, you missed verse 34 and 35. We're still stuck on verse 33. Did you understand verse 31, 32? Like, you don't say anything about glorification, which that would be my question. What do you mean now is the time? I say that's my, what I would be thinking. I don't know that. What do you mean now is the time? He doesn't say, man, you tell me to love others like you have loved me. He says, where are you going? What do you mean I can't follow you? I'm going to come with you. And Jesus repeats himself and says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, again, in a few verses, we're going to hear Jesus talk about heaven, where he goes to prepare a place for them. But this has a meaning, meaning the cross. Where I'm going, you cannot come, but afterwards you will follow. He's about to tell them about something over the next few chapters that they don't know about yet. He says, when I leave, you will get a new power. You cannot follow me now, but when I leave, the Spirit's coming. And when the Spirit comes, there's a new power. You cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Yes, in one way he means heaven, but he absolutely means the cross. After the cross, you will be able to do so. Look at what happens next. Poor Peter sticks to size 12 back in his mouth. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Here we see Peter's overconfidence, right? I'll lay down my life for you. And don't miss what Jesus says back. He says, Peter, you won't even make it through the evening. I'll lay down my life. You won't even make it through the evening. And ironically, Instead of laying down his life for him, he's going to deny even knowing him. And yet Jesus knows this. And while Peter is denying him, Jesus will be dying for him. Jesus knew, and he still did it anyway. Again, he says, follow the new commandment. Love others as I have loved you. What kind of love is that, friends? I think it's interesting that John is the only gospel that really focuses on Judas's betrayal. He gives it a lot of time. But every single gospel we see, unfortunately for Peter, Peter's betrayal told about, his denial told about. Why is it that this is prominent? Why is this put in all four of the gospels? Well, I think it's, it's very encouraging for us in many ways, and it's very instructive for us. You and I are going to fail. But even in that, we're called to look to the cross, which is the fourth point. The cross is the place where we must focus, even in the midst of failure. The cross is the place where we must focus even in the midst of our failures. Friends, here's just a glorious, a magnificent, a mind-boggling truth. Is that whenever you are a follower of Jesus, even your failures don't win anymore. Even your sin doesn't win anymore. Even that can be used to make you grow in Christ. Because why? Because even as you sin after knowing Jesus, you are reminded over and over again of the grace you do not deserve. You are reminded over and over again, even despite my failures, God will not let me go. He knew everything that I would ever do, yet he cast his love upon me anyway. Friends, case in point, look at the denial of Peter. Peter knew that Jesus loved him, but after the denial, he's going to find out Jesus loves him more than he even knew before. 
We see after this occurs, we see Peter is, is guilt-ridden. But then we see at the end of John, we see Jesus comes back to him. Can you imagine how much more Peter understood the love of Jesus after walking through a failure and seeing that you still accept me anyways? You do not leave me. You do not forsake me. In other words, our failures should remind us of two things. One, you and I are more sinful than we could ever even imagine, and you will learn that more and more your whole life, and if you're not, you're missing it. But just as you and I are more sinful than we could ever imagine, Jesus is more gracious and loving than you and I could ever imagine. I saw this graph years ago, and for me it was very helpful. It's a picture that I'll have for you on the screen. And this shows the idea of what should happen after you are converted, after you place your faith in Jesus. Now, to be clear, to, to be converted, you must understand your need. You must recognize you are a sinner. You must repent and place your faith in Jesus. There must be a recognition of what Jesus has done for you and a recognition of your own sin. But this graph shows us after you become a follower of Jesus, the cross should only grow. The cross should only become larger and larger. Look at what it's saying. So the top, the top bar there says deeper and deeper knowledge of God's holiness. You could say his holiness, which in many ways you could say is synonymous with his glory who God is, the bottom shows deeper and deeper knowledge of our sins. In other words, the more I walk with Christ, the more I should recognize just how sinful I am and just how great he is. Even as I walk through sin and failure, I recognize that even I'm more sinful than I realize. Or why shouldn't I be past this by now? The cross of Jesus should only grow larger and larger and larger the longer I walk with him. Both the glory of God and who he is and our own struggle with sin should remind us that we do not belong at the king's table, and yet he invites us anyway. Friends, you and I will fail in our walks with the Lord. We won't be as bold as we should be at times. We'll, we'll fall into that sin again, even though we are battling it. We'll lose our focus on him. We'll run after other things. We won't trust him in areas of our lives. The question is not, will you fail? The question is, what do you do when you do fail? Where do you go whenever you fail? Where do you go whenever you fall? For many and for much of my early life, as a follower of Christ, as I just ran to guilt, feeling awful about myself, feeling shameful. But whenever we do that, we act a lot like our, our parents, earthly parents, right? Adam and Eve. What did Adam and Eve do whenever they sinned? They ran and they hid in their guilt and in their shame. But what do followers of Jesus do? We don't run from God, we run to God. And friends, even in our failures, instead of letting, letting some type of, of issue, some guilt or some shame come over us, we run to the saving grace of mercy of Jesus where we see over and over again, you're more gracious than I could ever imagine. You're more merciful than I could ever imagine. And even in Christ, our failures do not win. And interestingly so, even our failures become marks. They become opportunities for us to talk about the grace and the glory of Jesus. I want you to think about Peter. Never thought about this before, but why does Jesus choose to tell him he's going to deny him by saying, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times? I would tell you most likely where, where they are living, it would have been very common early in the morning to probably hear what? To hear a rooster crow. So in other words, after that night, whenever... Jesus denies, or Peter denies knowing Jesus. What do you think Peter woke up to every single morning for the rest of his life while he lived in Judea? He woke up hearing what? A rooster. And every time he heard the rooster, what do you think went through his mind? 
I denied him. I denied him. But friends, hear me. That, I don't think that's actually true. I think that's what he felt up until Jesus came and said, my grace even covers that. And then every morning whenever he woke up and he heard the rooster crow, instead of saying, I denied him, he said, he didn't deny me, though. He still went to the cross. Jesus knew this was going to happen. Friends, as a believer, your sin is merely a reminder of the grace that you don't deserve that drives you more and more in love with Jesus. It should not make you run from him. It should make you run to him. Because even in our failures, we hear him say, I know, I paid for it. It is finished. I took care of it at the cross. Friends, this whole passage is simple. It's simple for us. We are called to look to the cross. The question is twofold. One, have you looked to the cross of Jesus for salvation? Have you repented and placed your faith in him and in him alone? And if you have, secondly, is do you still? Do you daily look to the cross of Jesus, recognizing everything you need to see there? Y'all would please bow your heads with me. Bow your heads, and I just ask you to close your eyes just for meditative purposes. And I would simply ask you, regardless of where you are this morning, your answer is Jesus. Your answer is to look to the cross. So I ask you, where are you this morning? Maybe this morning you're here and you are weighted down by the weight of your sin. You know that you live a life that is in opposition to God. You know that you are a sinner. The problem is, is you keep trying to pretty yourself up before you come to God. You keep trying to better yourself up. You keep trying to do it on your own to make yourself more presentable. Friends, hear me. You cannot make yourselves more presentable to Jesus. While you are a sinner, that's when Christ died for you. You don't pretty yourself up to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus that he might clean you up. And maybe this morning you're weighed down by the weight of your sin. I would tell you only Jesus can carry that weight. Will you give it to him? Will you repent of your sin, place your faith in Jesus, saying, Jesus, I'm tired of trusting in myself. I'm tired of trying to pretty myself up. I'm tired of trying to be good or be the best me I can be, and I give it all to you this morning. You need to surrender to him. Will you lay it down at his feet? Maybe this morning you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, but you're just riddled with guilt as you walk in this morning of sin or of a lack of obedience in your life, hear me, guilt and shame play no part of the Christian life. Whenever guilt or shame comes up, it should be just the reminder to run to the cross. And maybe this morning you're carrying guilt with you and you just need to lay it at the feet of Jesus. Let the cross of Jesus become bigger in your minds, recognizing just how loving and gracious and merciful he is. Maybe this morning you are grieving or you're weighed down by the sufferings and the hardships of this life. I would tell you, friends, the cross is a reminder that this is not the end. Three days later, Jesus comes out of the tomb. And he says, one day I will come back. I will bring you with me. You will have hardships in this life, but take heart. I have overcome this place. Your hardship won't last forever. This morning you need to look to the cross. Maybe this morning you're apathetic. Your relationship with Christ is as cold as ice. What you need to do this morning is look to Christ. Look to the cross. 
Maybe this morning you need to consider how do you focus on the cross daily? Are you in the Word? Are you praying? Friends, you can't look to the cross without intentionally making plans to look to it. You can't look to the cross without looking to the Word, without looking to Him through prayer, without looking to Him, through serving Him, without looking to Him daily. What is your plan to daily look to Him in every way this morning? You and I should look to the cross. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. Father, we praise you because of the work that you did through your Son on the cross to show us your glory, to magnify the beauty and goodness of your abundant perfections, to show us who you are. Father, help us now. As your Spirit convicts us, Lord, there's some in this room that maybe need to repent and give their life to you. Father, help them do that. Help them look to the cross and lay down their burdens. Father, there's others this morning who are followers of yours but who are struggling, Lord. Increase the cross in their minds now and help them respond as you convict them to do so. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. During this time as we stand and sing, maybe you just want to stay seated. And where you're seated, you just want to re reflect. And Is there how you need to respond? Maybe you want to come and pray at the altar. Maybe you want to come and talk to me or Luke down front. However you feel led to respond this morning, I would challenge you to do so as we stand and sing.